turn with me to Acts, the 18th chapter, and we'll continue our account of these uh, stirring stories of yesteryear. Uh, one, of, one of the interesting things about this chapter is that it portrays Paul at a time in his life when he was uh, afraid. We have a tendency, I think, to think of the apostles as supermen, heroic figures who, who don't have the sorts of passions and emotions and uh, fears and frustrations that we have, but that's simply not true. They're, they're people just like, uh, just like us. And this was a time in Paul's life when he was uh, troubled and pressured, and he became quite uh, afraid, as Luke tells us. Let's begin reading with verse 1, Acts 18, 1. After these things, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. The uh, things that, he, uh, that Luke refers to here are the events that are described in chapter 17, the ridicule that uh, he was exposed to from the philosophers in Athens, and their uh, polite dismissal. Uh, and from Athens, then, he journeyed on to Corinth, which was uh, located uh, just to the southwest of, of Athens. If you have the map that was inserted in your bulletin, you can uh, locate the city of Corinth. It's right to the south of that, that little neck that connects the northern part of Greece and the Peloponnesus, which is the peninsula that looks like a uh, glove with the fingers extending down into the Mediterranean. And Paul went down uh, there to Corinth, I think probably to meet Silas and Timothy, who, whom he expected to journey down from Macedonia. And that was a large seaport, and that's where he expected to find them. Corinth was a big city by anyone's standards, ancient or modern. Uh, at the time Paul visited Corinth, there were about 700,000 people living there, about half of them slaves. It was a big, uh, bustling cosmopolitan center. Seaports usually are. If you want to think of a modern counterpart, think of the city of San Francisco or Seattle. Uh, multilingual, multiracial, uh, sort of a mixing pot. People from all over the Roman Empire came into Corinth to live. And as you would expect to be true of a seaport town, it was a very wicked city, known for its uh, unusual sexual uh, activities. The, in, as a matter of fact, the ancients coined a word to Corinthianize was to engage in uh, unusual forms of sex. There, there was a, just behind the city of Corinth, to the south of it, there's a little low hill where originally the fortress, the Acre Corinth, was located, but later it was the location of a temple dedicated to Aphrodite. And they tell us that there were a thousand hierodouloi, they were called uh, sacred harlots, temple prostitutes that were quartered up there. And periodically they'd be brought down to the city of Corinth and they would work the streets of, of the city. And that's the situation in which Paul found himself in Corinth. I don't think he, he ever intended to go there. He wanted to be in Macedonia. Remember, the, the, the call was to Macedonia, to northern Greece. And uh, he'd been thrown out of one town after another. He went to Philippi, and they forced him out. He went to Thessalonica, and, and he had to leave that city. He went down to Berea, just going from one place to the next. He wanted to go back. He desperately wanted to go to, to Macedonia, but he was being hindered and frustrated. And I think his only reason for being in Corinth was to find Silas and, and Timothy, to wait for their arrival. And we, we read in verse 2 that he found a certain Jew named Aquila. 
That's one of those names that we have traditionally mispronounced for so long that it doesn't, any, doesn't do any good to try to change our minds. Uh, his name was not Aquila, it was Aquila. But it's sort of like uh, Sapphira, and no one knows who Sapphira is, but that's really her name, but we still call her Sapphira. And uh, we'll refer to this Jew as Aquila because no one knows what you're talking about if you call him Aquila. He was a native of Pontus, which is in northern Turkey, up near the Black Sea, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Luke is fond of using diminutive forms, and uh, that's the way he refers to Priscilla. Her name is Prisca. Priscilla means little Prisca. It's sort of interesting to me that Luke almost uh, always uses short forms, nicknames, uh, diminutive forms, like we refer to Billy instead of Bill or Tommy instead of Tom. He uses those, uh, those diminutive uh, forms of, of names where Paul always refers to people by their formal name. Wherever he refers to this young lady, he calls her Prisca. And uh, uh, Silas, he calls Sylvanus instead of Silas. Luke refers to him as Silas. Luke, I think, was a much more breezy, casual character than Paul. Maybe Paul was a little stuffy and, and overly dignified. But in this case, Luke refers to this young lady as Priscilla. She evidently was a noble lady, came from a noble family. The Prisca family is known in Rome. They were a very wealthy uh, family. And she came from this, this group, evidently. We don't know anything about Aquila except he was a tradesman and how a uh, a Gentile Roman noble lady became married to a Jewish uh, craftsman. We don't know. She probably just fell in love with this handsome young uh, craftsman somewhere along the way and, and married him. It's interesting that, that of the six occurrences of the two names, her name precedes uh, Aquila's four times. I don't know why. Particularly Paul refers to them as Priscilla and Aquila. She apparently was the more uh, uh, talkative of the two and uh, seems to have had the greater influence upon people. They had a remarkable family. Paul's friendship with them extends over 17 or 18 years. As far as we know, they didn't have any children. They must have been very young when Paul first met them. They uh, had a, a church that met in their house in Ephesus for two years, and then Paul sent them back to Rome as his forerunner to Rome, and, and a church met in their house there for six to ten years, and then he came back to Ephesus. They were associated with Paul all, all down the line. Remarkable uh, couple. Luke tells us that they had been forced out of Rome. Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Uh, Claudius was generally a good emperor, but he had a dislike for the Jews. And one of the early Roman historians, Suetonius, says that he threw all the Jews out of Rome uh, because of a riot at the instigation of one Crestus. And most... Most historians think that that's, uh, that's his misspelling of the word Christ. Reading between the lines, what happened is that the Christians were evangelizing in Rome, and the same thing was happening to them that happened to Paul. They were creating riots wherever they went. And Claudius got tired of the, uh, the unrest in his city, and so he just threw all the, all the Jews out. And Aquila and Priscilla got caught up in his dragnet. Priscilla wasn't even a Jew, but of course she was married to a Jew, and so they, they had to leave. If you stop and think about it for a moment, this is, it was no small thing. They, they probably lost their shop. He was a, a, a tent maker like the Apostle Paul, leather worker. They made uh, garments and curtains and tents out of sheep uh, skin. 
goatskin. And uh, he must have lost his business. He lost his clientele. He lost his inventory. He probably lost his house and everything. And he had to flee the city of Rome and probably came to Corinth because it was the nearest large seaport. And uh, he came wandering through the streets of Corinth, wondering what he was going to do next and how he was going to support himself. And he saw this little short, bow-legged, bald-headed Jewish fellow who uh, was at the Union Hall applying for work. And uh, they got together and realized that they were of the same trade, and, and they were both Christians. Apparently, Aquila and Priscilla had become Christians through some contact in, in Rome, and immediately there was, there was rapport. Really amazing when you think about it. Paul walked into the city of Corinth, and there wasn't a single Christian in town. Not one. No churches. Christianity was virtually unheard of. If people knew of it at all, it was in some distorted form. Paul walks into this huge city of 700,000 and just happens to run into the one Christian in town, Aquila. And you could say the same thing for Aquila and Priscilla. They must have been worried sick, wondering where they were going to, how they were going to support themselves and where they would live. And they just happened to run into the one other Christian in town. Just one of those accidents of, of history, we say. Well, because they were of the same trade, Luke says, Paul stayed with them. Lived, they moved in together. Rented an apartment, perhaps, to save money and shared expenses. And they worked uh, because they were both by trade tent makers. And Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. He worked during the uh, work week, and then on the Sabbath, on Saturday, he would go into the synagogues, as his custom was, and, and debate with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks there. This is the place I've mentioned before where one of the later texts uh, inserts the words, inserting the name of Jesus. In other words, Paul would reason with the Jews out of the scriptures and insert the name of Jesus where it was appropriate. Now, that's not a part of our Bible. It's a much, much later manuscript, but it probably preserves the memory of some early Christians who knew how Paul, what Paul's practice was. He's going to the synagogues, open up the Old Testament scriptures and place the name of Jesus where the word uh, Yahweh occurs in appropriate spots through the Old Testament. But uh, apparently there was not much response because of the way uh, Luke describes his activity. He was trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that, that Jesus was the Messiah. Silas and Timothy finally turned up in Corinth, and they uh, evidently delivered the word to Paul that it was impossible for him to go back to Thessalonica. All the legal routes that Paul had gone to try to uh, reverse the decision apparently fell through, and there was no way for him to go back to Thessalonica, which must have been a real blow for him. He says in the letter that he writes at this time to the church in Thessalonica that a number of times he tried to get back, but Satan hindered him. Well, it was this, uh, this bond that justice had had posted that he would never again come back to Thessalonica. And uh, secondly, they, they brought some money from Macedonia. Paul refers to this gift in, in Corinthians and uh, again in Philippians, that these folks up in Macedonia took up an offering and they sent it down by Silas and Timothy's hands. And Paul then was free to stop working. And as Luke puts it, he devoted himself completely to the Word. He gave himself to evangelizing the, the city. But uh, the people in the synagogue resisted and blasphemed, uh, blasphemed against Jesus. 
And so he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood or your death be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul is saying, I've done everything I can do to deliver you from your death-like state. Uh, you know the truth that you remain in, in this condition is your own choice. You know the word. And as long as you resist, there's nothing but, but spiritual death ahead. So he employs a, a common uh, Semitic uh, custom. He shakes out his garment as a sign against them. And he says, I'll, I'll go someplace else. I've done everything I can do for you. As long as you hold out, there's, there's no other solution, no other salvation. So he goes next door to the house of uh, a man who became a very close friend. Verse 7, he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. He was a Gentile who worshipped there in the, in the temple, whose house was next door to the synagogue. This is probably the man that Paul refers to in Romans as Gaius, who was my host and a host to the church in Corinth. The church for years met in, in, in his house, right next door to the synagogue. If you go to Corinth today, they'll show you the location of that, of that synagogue. It's right in the middle of town. And they found a lintel, a stone uh, door lintel, with a carving on it, the synagogue of the Jews. And it's dated right at uh, Paul's time, so it apparently was the sign for the synagogue. And sure enough, right next door, there's a house. You can see the foundations there. There's a tree growing up through the foundations, but they're all there. And, and you can see the location of Gaius' house. And Paul went next door. And he started a home Bible study. And uh, Crispus, we're told in verse 8, the leader of the synagogue, the foremost Jew in town, believed in the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, that is, Jews and, and Gentiles, when they heard, were believing and, and being baptized. Uh, Paul moved to a neutral site that was much more attractive to the Gentiles. A Gentile would probably never go to a synagogue, but they would go next door. It wasn't churchy. It wasn't religious. It was just a house. And a lot of people knew Gaius, and they would show up there and listen to Paul, but probably would, would never go for any form of institutionalized religion, a sort of halfway house for seekers. And uh, they came, and Paul taught them the scriptures, and the gospel was spreading all over the city. People were finding Christ everywhere. But uh, as, as was always the case, when, when this sort of thing happened, immediately there was opposition. Things began to heat up, and Paul started thinking, Oh, no, not again. I've run from Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and I'm just I'm tired of it. And he, he was in this huge city, 700,000. It was the seat of the Roman imperial authority in, 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 in Achaia. And he, you know, he just began to get frightened and uneasy. But in the middle of the night, we're told, the Lord appeared to Paul, verse 9, the Lord, and this is the Lord Jesus, appeared to Paul in the, in the night by a vision. And he said, stop being afraid. That's a better translation than our do not be afraid because... Uh, uh, it's not, he's not saying to Paul, don't start being afraid. He's saying, stop being afraid. Paul was, was apparently terrified of his own life, for his own life. But uh, go on speaking. That's what got him in trouble in the first place. And the Lord says, go on. Don't, don't uh, be silent, for I am with you. That's always the Lord's answer to us when we're afraid. He's... 
He's with us. He's right here. He's everything that we need. The meaning of, of his name in the Old Testament is I am. I am whatever you need. If you need courage, that's what I am. If you need wisdom, that's what I am. If you need strength, that's what I am. I'm right here, available to you. And furthermore, he says, no, no harm, no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Now, this was not a, a promise to Paul that he would never be harmed, because Paul, as you know, was beaten and dragged before Roman tribunals and imprisoned and battered and left for dead, stoned, all kinds of dreadful things happened to the, to the apostle. Nor is this some sort of promise to us that no harm will ever come to us. This is a special promise for Paul in a particular situation. The Lord says, Paul, you won't be harmed because I have many people in this city. That's a great expression of the heart of God. These uh, Corinthians, most of uh, whom would uh, not make good neighbors, God loves. And he just wants to gather them in. It gives us some idea of what really matters in life. God is not primarily concerned about our comfort or our ease or our affluence. There's nothing wrong with those things. and There's no particular uh, virtue to seeking hardship. But, but he's not above making things a little bit difficult for us in order to reach people, to reach others, or to do some work in us. There is, I think, a principle enshrined here that, that we, as Augustine put it, we are immortal until our work is done. No one can touch us until God is, is through with us. Until he's, he's done with us in terms of the work that he's doing in our lives, in, in perfecting us, maturing us. And until he's done with us in, time, in terms of the work that he's doing to others, no one can, can really harm us. The Roman Empire couldn't touch Paul. They had no power over him. 700,000 people in Corinth. If the whole city rioted, they couldn't touch Paul because there was work to be done. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, his last words were, It is finished. He did not say, I am finished. He said, It is the work that I came to do. Our Lord was immortal until his work was done. No one could take his life away from him. The cross didn't kill him. He could have hung there forever until his work was done. Now that, I think, is a tremendous comfort. Uh, you know, if one of us is gone this afternoon, if the Lord sees fit to take us home, one of the things we can know for sure is that our work is done. That's all. He's completed the work that he wants to do in us or in someone else. But until that work is done, no one can touch us, ultimately. Now, that was Paul's assurance. Um... At another time in his life, he wrote the church in, in, in Philippi, and he said, uh, said this, the, the words that are familiar to all of us, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, he says, um, uh, of the two options, I would rather die, because that's better. But he says, I know that I shall remain for your sake, because he knew that God was not yet through with Paul. He had further work to do. So he says, therefore, I know that I'll remain behind, though it would be better for me to go. Now, the point that, that, that Luke is making, I think, and that we need to understand is that the, the, the highest priority in God's eyes is the kingdom of God and its extension. 
the extension of the sphere of God's sovereignty and his rule over hearts. What he wants to do is enthrone himself in our hearts and increasingly grow in terms of the measure of sovereignty that he exercises over us. And then secondly, he wants to reach others. He wants to extend the kingdom that way. That's the highest good. He, he may not make things easy for us to accomplish that goal because that's not the first thing. First things first. We need to keep that in mind. There are many people in this city, in Boise, that God wants to reach. And uh, he will use us as he used the Apostle Paul in that way. And we will not be harmed until that, that work is done, though things may become difficult for us. Now, that was Paul's assurance. And so he settled down there, we're told, for a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. And a large, uh, very effective church developed as a result. But it was a church that, by and large, was a, uh, as far as Paul was concerned, was a pain in the neck. Uh, you read through the books of First and Second Corinthians, and you realize how much he struggled with this, uh, with this group of people. He says in 2 Corinthians, one of the things that distresses him is the pressure of all the churches. Well, if you stop and think of the churches that Paul was responsible for at that time, with Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, they were a tremendous encouragement to Paul. He was really thinking of the Corinthians, I'm sure. His relationship was always strained with them, and he struggled and struggled uh, with this group of people. And, uh, and yet, they were effective. They did have a a great influence on that city. And he stayed there with that church, consolidating the work that had been done, teaching the Word of God among them. Um, Paul was there from fall of A.D. 50 until the spring of A.D. 52. And in 51, a man by the name of Gallio became the governor of Achaia, the province in which uh, uh, Corinth is located. In verse 12... We're told that while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. They have found that uh, judgment seat, the bema as it's called in, in Greek in, in Corinth, a big slab of blue and white marble that was the front porch on his, uh, on his house, and that's where, he, uh, that's where the court met. The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat and these are the charges that they uh, prefer in verse 13. This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, before he had a chance to defend himself, this pagan Roman governor defends him. Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. If this were a matter of Roman law, he says, the logical thing to do would be to bear with you. But uh, if these are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Apparently he dismissed them and they wouldn't leave, and so he had to drive them away. The official uh, judges, the lictors, took their sticks in their hands and, and drove, them, drove them away. Gallio saw that he had no jurisdiction in this matter. It was not a matter of Roman law. It was an internal matter having to do with, uh, with religious uh, affairs. And he saw that Christianity was simply an extension of Judaism. He was a very perceptive man, though he was not at all a Christian. He was a very good man. His, his uh, brother was Seneca, the philosopher, who describes him in his, in his writings as sweet Gallio. He's a very gentle, kind man and a very wise, perceptive person. 
He recognized that this was not a matter of Roman law. It had nothing whatever to do with his jurisdiction, with his uh, responsibilities, his legal responsibilities. It was a, a matter having to do with, with, with Jewish law and custom and religious matters. And so he refused to rule. Now, this is one of those incidents that Luke simply uh, describes and passes over without comment. But if you stop and think about it, it's very interesting. If Gallio had ruled against Paul, the other governors would have followed his precedent and the gospel would have been suppressed all over the Roman Empire. It would have become Roman law. And it would be impossible for the Apostle Paul any longer to preach in public or for churches to exist out in, in the open or Christians to evangelize. The whole movement would have had to go underground. And it did eventually. And about ten years later, Nero reversed Gallio's decision and Christianity became an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. But they had 10 to 12 years in which the gospel was free to spread, all because one pagan Roman judge was used of God to, to judge properly. Isn't that interesting? Now, uh, there's a note of humor here. <clears throat> in verse 17, the uh, Jews took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. He's the man who replaced Crispus. He was his successor after Crispus became a Christian. And they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was unconcerned, refused to intervene. Uh, apparently, Sosthenes mishandled the trial to such an extent that his own Jewish uh, countrymen turned against him and started to beat him up in front of, of the tribunal. And uh, interestingly enough, Sosthenes became a Christian. Uh, he's mentioned in 1 Corinthians as Paul's uh, associate when he writes, writes the book to, uh, to Corinth. Paul and Sosthenes to the church in, in Corinth. And then uh, Luke tells us that, that uh, Paul remained many days longer. And then he said farewell. He took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. He waited for a few more months for the sea lanes to open. And then he left... Uh, for the east, for the church was was left behind. Now, as I uh, read through this passage this past week, the, the idea that struck me over and over again is God's sovereign control of all of these events. His, his desire, his heart, was to reach the people in Corinth, people that, by and large, we would not think uh, were at all interested in spiritual things. These are the people out there, pure pagans. But God loved them, and he wanted to reach them. And he just saw to it that the Apostle Paul just happened to be down in Corinth waiting for his friends. Probably wasn't Paul's intention to, to even visit Corinth, much less preach there. And he just saw to it that Aquila and Priscilla got to the right place at the right time. And he used a, a pagan emperor, Claudius, to drive them out of Rome. And uh, he just saw to it that they got thrown out of the synagogue so they could go to a neutral setting where they could reach even more people. He used a lot of stresses, a lot of strains that they had to undergo, but, but it was God working through all of the operations of history to, to bring about the highest and the best good, which is the, the including in of all the people in that city that, that God loved and wanted to reach. And what struck me perhaps most forcefully is, is simply the fact that God used uh, a disinterested uh, pagan Roman government to accomplish much of this. We have a tendency to think of government as universally bad. We know that it's there to maintain law and order and justice, and we see some good elements in, in, our, uh, in our leaders. But, but you can see that God is 
turning the heart of the king like a channel of water, wherever he will, using unbelieving uh, political leaders in order to accomplish his ends, sovereignly working everything out to accomplish the highest good, which is that of bringing people into the family of God and helping them to grow up in that, in that relationship. And he's not about putting us through some strenuous times. doesn't mind making us uncomfortable. doesn't mind putting the pressure on us. He doesn't use us or exploit us because there's tremendous satisfaction in doing his will. But, you know, we, as, we need to have the same attitude toward life that God does. The highest goal is not our comfort, but it's the fulfilling of, of his will. It's the extension of his kingdom. That's what matters. Some of you know John and Mary Finkbeiner. There you are. John's a dear friend of mine. I told the story to the men Wednesday morning. They'll have to forgive me for telling it again. But uh, John was the owner of the uh, athlete's foot over here in Cole Village and uh, was quite well known in track and field circles. He was the inventor of the Fosbury flop. Some of you may remember Fosbury, the high jumper who developed this head-first style. I think he was the first American to go seven feet. And uh, John was, the, uh, was his coach at the time and, and developed that style for him. Uh, John uh, left Boise about two years ago and went over to Bend, Oregon to open another athlete's foot over there. We've corresponded off and on, but I sort of lost touch with him in the last six months or so. And I got a call Tuesday morning, and uh, he said, Guess what? And I said, What? He said, I'm broke. And I said, do you mean your store's not going well? And he says, no, I, as a matter of fact, I lost my stores. So I went bankrupt. I lost uh, the athlete's foot over here. I lost all the money that I'd made on the sale of the store here in, in Boise. I lost all my retirement funds. I lost my savings. I've lost my house. I've lost everything. I'm wiped out. I don't have a thing. And I said, John, that is terrible. He said, no, it isn't. It's great. <laughs> And I said, well, tell me about it. <laughs> and uh, to make a long story short, two or three months ago, he took a track team down to Central America, and they traveled through a number of those small countries competing with uh, athletes in Central America. And, and uh, John and some of the other athletes who were Christians were sharing their faith, and a number of students and, and others, young men and women, received Christ as a result. And the president of Guatemala, Mont, who is a Christian, as you know, an evangelical Christian, invited John to come down to Guatemala to coach the, their Olympic team. But, but the primary purpose for his being there, as Mont put it, was to share the gospel with uh, Guatemalan athletes and, and others in, in, those, in those countries in Central America. And John says, worth it all in terms of what it's done for me and the opportunity that it's opened up for me to have a, an impact upon others. As Paul puts it, it's all for our sakes, ultimately. God is, is building us, and he's building others. And we need to have that perspective. A willingness to say, Lord, I'll lose anything in order to accomplish the higher good because you have many, many people in this city. Let's pray. Can we stand together? Father, deliver us from our constant preoccupation with, with uh, things and personal comfort particularly at this time of the year when, uh, when things seem to be so important, and help us to realize that there is uh, far more at stake than our own well-being. Thank you for giving us this truth. Thank you that, uh, that there is great joy and satisfaction in knowing it and acting 
accordingly. We realize that you don't use us and exploit us simply to accomplish your ends, but uh, you fulfill us and satisfy us uh, completely in, uh, in following out your will. Grant your blessing upon us today. Encourage us with your strength and your wisdom and all that you are. We thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.